Welcome to this week's episode of Seen and Heard, industry updates for the modern dairy family. I'm Darby Toth, a technical field services representative with Western United Dairies. And I'm Melissa Lima, the North Coast and Organic Field Services Rep with Western United Dairy. Happy World Ag Expo Week abridged there, Darby. <laughs> this is quite an abridged World Ag Expo Week. I haven't had a single tri-tip sandwich or a beer yet, so I'm feeling a little bummed out. I know it's kind of a, a rough one. We really miss seeing everyone at the expo. Um, we just want to throw out there, what does have a landing page? We were um, involved in the virtual show. So if anyone wants to check that out, it's linked in our show notes. But I think uh, when we were talking earlier, you mentioned good news for all the wives that didn't have to abridge their Valentine's Day this year. <laughs> exactly. It's still a little abridged because of COVID, but hopefully everybody can order some takeout and do something nice at home. Absolutely. So... Um, last week, I, we ran an episode that re-aired our webinar from the week. It was a really good webinar. We had great information. Um, it was a group of cattle council members that are also WUD members talking about some work that the cattle council did in partnership with Western United and Cattlemen's. And we were really excited about it. And unfortunately, we had some glitches in the editing. I'm not sure what happened when we put the show together and I kind of did the last run through before we uploaded it on the platform. It sounded good. And then when I was listening to it on Apple on Monday, I realized it was atrocious. There was a lot of just clips randomly at the beginning. And then um, it didn't, it just didn't make much sense. So I did edit that. I'm not sure if it's uploaded properly on all platforms again, but I did want to let folks know that it's redone and we will also be posting that to our website in the video form so you can see the presentation along with it. So sadly, it was really good information that I don't think our listeners got the full spectrum of, but just want to throw that out there. We're sorry for the issue and um, we're going to double check this week before this podcast goes live to make sure that we're all good. Yep. And with that housekeeping done, we'll jump right into this week's episode. We're going to have a market update with Tiffany LaMondola. I sat down with some members of Moss Energy Works to talk about what they're up to with their digesters. And then we're also going to re-air the webinar that aired this week as a virtual kitchen table meeting. That was with Ashley Rosales from the Dairy Council of California, and she shared some really exciting information on the dietary guidelines for 2020 and what that means for dairy. Awesome. Well, without further ado, we'll roll right into Tiffany's market update. Hi, folks. Hope you had a great week. Well, we spent uh, most every day with the spot cheese prices uh, declining or chipping away, you know, at that end of the week rally we saw last week. Um, questions around new government stimulus measures and what they could mean for dairy uh, did give some markets, uh, gave the market some lift on Thursday, um, but retreated again on Friday. When all said was done, we lost eight and a quarter cents on the blocks to 155.75 and a penny on the barrels to 149. Setting aside kind of the chatter about government aid, uh, key fundamental drivers have really not changed much. Um, still lots of milk out in the countryside. USDA reported spot milk prices in the upper Midwest um, at a midpoint of 625 under class. That's a slight improvement from 675 the week before, uh, but well below last year's average of 350. That price also ranks among the top 10 steepest discounts going back to 2012. 
it's just one measure of kind of um, spot milk prices out in the countryside that we can use. The demand picture remains relatively unchanged also. Uh, food service orders remain weak, while retail sales continue to trend over prior year levels. That's really our, our bright spot. Moving on to butter, uh, we did end the week with a nice little gain. Uh, we picked up 12 and three quarter cents for the week up to 139.50. Still relatively depressed prices here as we are in the final weeks of old crop butter making its way to Chicago. We've really been trading in kind of that 125 to 135 range and I suspect that will be the case as we close out the month. Uh, retail activity on butter also remained really strong, um, up over about 15% um, data showing for January. Finally, in nonfat dry milk, uh, we inched a little lower for the week, down three quarters of a cent to 111.25. Things relatively quiet on that front. Uh, contacts continue to cite pretty uh, plentiful supplies um, demand, you know, pretty good, but intermittent. And so we've seen those prices fluctuate also within a pretty narrow range. There is another global dairy trade event next week. And next week is also a shortened trading week. The markets are closed on Monday. Hope you all have a great weekend. Thank you. Hi, I'm Jessica with PG&E. 811 is a free service to keep our community safe. Before you do any digging, PG&E will mark your gas and electric lines so you don't hit them. Call 811 before you dig. To learn more, visit pge.com safety. Thanks so much to Tiffany for always bringing us the market update. Next, Darby sat down with Daryl Moss of Moss Energy to talk about some really exciting projects that they're working on with our dairy partners in the Central Valley. All right, well, we are here today with Daryl Moss, the CEO of Moss Energy Works. And Moss has been a sponsor with Western for quite a while. And we're pretty excited to have, have them on today to chat about, chat about Moss. Good afternoon, Darby. Thanks very much for having me. It's um, pretty exciting to have you guys on. You're quite busy and all over the place. So I figured we would kind of break this down a little bit and kind of see just what's going on with Moss as a whole. But maybe as we get started, you could tell us just a little bit about the origins of Moss, about yourself, and kind of how you came to be doing this job. Well, sure. I, um, I grew up in uh, Northwest Washington in Skagit County, which is uh, just one county down from Linden. And it's one of those little dairy-centric counties on the coast there in rainy Washington. So I grew up with a little Christian high school where about half of the kids in the, uh, in the class were all dairy farmers. And uh, that was the world I grew up in. Uh, and I went, left and went to the military. But when I got back, um, I just started hearing about these dairy digesters. And I, I hadn't been involved in agriculture for, you know, 10 years as I'd been off in the military. But uh, my brother and I at the time uh, started talking to a lot of our friends that we had grown up with and said, have you looked at these digesters? And they said, yeah, they look pretty interesting, but uh, we don't want to spend the time and money and, and risk of getting involved. So they said, why don't you guys try to figure it out? And, and if you can figure it out, we'll give you the land and the manure uh, and we can kind of work together to build projects. So that was the start back in 2007 was just kind of trying to find a way to deploy this technology in a way that worked on the dairy farm really in my hometown. So your initial project started up that way, and then you're currently headquartered in Reading. 
That's right. We moved down to Redding in 2010, and uh, very quickly I realized there was a lot more cows in California uh, than there is in Oregon and Washington, which is where we started. So uh, we're based out of Redding, but uh, beginning in 2011, 12, 13, we started building more and more projects in the California Central Valley. That's still very much our home. We have uh, close to 100 projects either in operation or in active development, and I would say about two-thirds of them are in the California Central Valley. Well, kind of bouncing off that, would you mind giving us kind of a brief overview of kind of where digesters were 10 years ago, maybe in the Central Valley and kind of where we're at today? I know things have changed quite a bit in that time span. Yeah, they, they sure have. When I, when I first came down to, to Larry on my first trip down south and I, I walked down to a couple of dairies and the, and the producers would tell me, oh, yeah, I've heard of digesters. Uh, my cousin got one and, and it went broke two years later. And then there was another guy that built one and it exploded. And then there was another guy that promised us we were going to make millions. And he signed up everybody in the neighborhood and we haven't heard from him in three years. So there was all kinds of stories. <laughs> and uh, it was, it was a very different landscape with, with a lot of uh, justified skepticism back then. Uh, what, what eventually started happening uh, at the beginning is our business model was that we were willing to uh, build digesters at our own cost. And so we did a few of those where we would go onto the dairy and say, you know, you don't have to invest anything in this. You don't have to own this. You don't have to take any risk. Uh, we'll deploy the capital and we'll get the facility built. So we did a couple of those up in Sacramento County. We did some more of them down in Pixley, uh, Tulare County. And uh, it took some time, but the market changed, you know, over about a five-year period where over time, when people see that the digesters really do work, uh, that they, they don't have to be as complex and high risk as some of the early designs were, um, then you really gain some traction. Uh, one of the keys for us was building digesters that are working around the dairy. Uh, too often, somebody would come into the market and say, I'm going to change your whole dairy around. I'm going to spend three times the value of your dairy to build this new complex digester that's designed in Denmark and serviced in Sweden and who knows what. Um, it, they really had to be designed to fit in with the dairy as the dairy currently operated. And so we, we used a lot of covered lagoon digesters, which work really well with, you know, Central Valley flush dairies uh, in our climate and with our manure practices. And it had to be done that way. It was just simply too hard to try to switch everyone around. They have, they have to work around the operations and not inconvenience the, the milk production. Well, I think that's interesting. I, I've seen a couple of those digesters in person and my family up north is, you know, in the process of putting one in. And I, I talked to one of my dairymen, one of my members, and he said, you know, it's great. I told them, you know, what I was kind of looking for and that I don't want to have to worry about it. You know, I want it to go and I want it to do its job. I want it to work with the dairy. But, you know, from what I understand, depending on your arrangement, a lot of that management and that upkeep, you know, you continue to provide that service to the dairymen. Yeah, we do. Our, we essentially have two different business models. Um, one of them is, is we provide the project, uh, we build it at no cost to the dairyman. Um, so uh, the dairyman, we, we, they get to approve the design. So we come on and we say, well, we think we should put in a separator here. We think we should, you know, cover this pond or build a new pond here. But other than approving the design, the dairyman doesn't have to do anything else. They, they can essentially, we, we operate on the back of the dairy uh, all via gravity, usually off the back of the separator. And um, so uh, they're not changing any operations. And uh, we're just accepting the manure as it comes and it flows through our process and then it flows via gravity back into their storage. And so we operate that facility ourselves, we pay for it, we build it ourselves. 
Although increasingly, you know, I mentioned earlier that there was a lot of justified skepticism at the beginning of the industry, but increasingly now, a lot of producers and families would like to own the facility themselves. They've kind of realized that there's a lot of money to be made in digesters. It's a good way to diversify your income. It's a good way to, you know, maximize the, the production value of the dairy. And a lot of families don't want to give up of that earnings potential to an investor or, or a developer. Um, they'd rather have it their own. So I would say a large chunk of our digesters right now, Moss Energy Works is actually working as a project manager on behalf of the dairy. And the dairy actually owns 100% of the facility. They own the grants, they own the equity, they own, they own the gas. Uh, it's their project. And I am working as their owner's representative where we still build the project and we still operate it on their behalf, but they're producer owned. And that's been a huge change because early on, uh, nobody wanted to do that. But now more and more as confidence grows, a lot of families see that as, as another business they want to get into. Well, it's exciting to have both those types of business models because you're going you're gonna to appeal to different types of business plans and families and producers. So it's exciting to see, see that and how that's kind of broadened the scope of who would be interested in having a digester or owning a digester. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, you know, in some models, you can just get paid a rate per cow. And for some families, that's exactly what they want. And they want to invest their time and their capital and land or cows or trees or whatever they're doing. Uh, but uh, other folks want to be more involved. And in that case, you know, we give them the experienced team uh, that can make sure the digester is going to be built right and, and the products are going to be sold right, uh, but uh, give them the control over how they'd like to see it done. So we've always thought that was really important. These, these projects, you know, integrate quite deeply into a family's plans. And so they ought to have maximum control over, over how the ownership is structured. That's great. Well, now that we've talked about, you know, kind of where the digester industry came from, uh, maybe if you don't mind, we could talk about some projects that you're working on across California and maybe beyond. If you maybe share some information with us about that and what's, what's up with Moss right now. Sure. So uh, our initial generation was power plant projects. Uh, we did many of those across the state. A few years ago, we switched to clusters is kind of the word we use in the industry. And that is a group of digesters that are all next to each other that connect via pipeline and deliver their gas uh, into the utility pipeline. So we built the first one of those in California uh, down in Pixley. We call it Calgren Dairy Fuels. Came online in 2019. And uh, that project has, I think, about 12 or 13 dairies online and growing all the time. What we're working on right now is to try to bring more of those clusters online. So we're right now in early commissioning at what we call Lakeside Pipeline. Uh, and that's a facility uh, just east of Hanford, California takes about 10 dairies that are in, in the East Hanford, kind of along the 198 and south of the 198 there. And there's going to be a, a central facility is more or less built uh, on River Ranch Dairy. And then a lot of the neighbors will be supplying gas via private pipeline. Uh, and that's our next big one we want to bring online probably in March. And uh, that's, uh, that's a big exciting one for us. It's, uh, it's, it's a group of big dairies. That's an area that had attempted to do projects you know, 10 years ago on a similar scale. But to, to see one become a reality is, is pretty exciting. So we are uh, working hard to bring those online. We've laid, oh, I don't know, 18, 20 miles of pipe in the area. And uh, it's, it's a pretty big one. Had to fight a lot of rain. Uh, but that one's coming online. And then we have two other projects that will be online this summer. Uh, one of them we call the Five Points Project. That's in the Riverdale area. And that's uh, five dairies out uh, kind of towards Five Points uh, and, uh, you know, uh, west of Riverdale. And finally... We have a Merced pipeline project, which will be very large. It'll probably be close to 20 dairies by the time it's done. 
and that one will be online probably late this summer. That's south of Merced in kind of the sandy mush area uh, just west of the 99. So those three are our goals to get each one of those groups online, uh, say by uh, August or September of this year. Well, it's pretty fascinating. It's been quite fascinating watching some of those, those big facilities get built and seeing how everything gets linked together. And I know it's quite a task to, to connect all of that sometimes. So I'm sure it's, it's exciting for everyone to see it come to fruition. Yeah, there's uh, been a lot of folks who are willing to take a chance on us, and we really appreciate a lot of producers have been uh, great, great families to work with. One of the funnest things for us is to get into a new area and gradually build the relationships to, to get a whole community. You know, sometimes it's extended families, it's landowners that aren't related, but, you know, they have to work together as neighbors, and, and they, they learn that there's a benefit and everybody working together. So as you bring a whole group online, you kind of change the economics and sometimes kind of almost change the working culture a little bit, and that's that's fun to see where, where everybody gets to benefit as part of these projects. We could always use a little bit more unity in the industry in any form. So <laughs> I love to see that just as much as you do. Well, thanks so much. Is there anything else you kind of like to add or share about Moss as we wrap up here? Um, we will link your website in the show notes. So if anybody's interested in contacting you or seeing what you're up to, we'll make sure that that's available for our listeners. Sure. So um, they're happy to contact us on our website. One of the things we try to do is put out a quarterly update kind of on what we call the cow gas market, just to help producers kind of understand uh, how the market is developing and where, where to position themselves as a producer in the market. What we're really hopeful is that we can keep building more and more facilities on smaller California dairies. You know, the initial rush was to build uh, on all the big dairies. That, that's where the economies of scale are, and that's great. Uh, but we'd like to see more families be able to participate. So we keep working on new technologies and ways to be more efficient in what we do so that uh, a broader number of dairies can get involved. Uh, that's important because at the same time as we're doing this in California, you know, a lot of dairies outside the state are doing the same thing. And so it's, it's kind of a race to supply uh, more gas to the market. And uh, we, we do some work outside the state as well, uh, and that's, that's, that's healthy. In fact, a lot of the same families are in California and outside of California, uh, but uh, our investments here are the ones that pay off the quickest and, and the ones that really we have the densest dairy population here and a dairy population that's regulated the most. And so we think the, the benefits are still very high for California dairies. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to new technology that's going to allow you guys to work with some of those smaller herds because I think there is really so much potential there and so much opportunity for continued sustainability and, you know, continuing to help them stay, you know, profitable and, and in business. So I'm excited. Looking forward to seeing what you guys are going to be up to next. Oh, thank you. Yeah, maybe a little background on that. So it used to be we told people you needed 2,500, maybe 3,000 milk cows. And that was a standard that, you know, would, would make a profitable project. But there's two ways that we found to make projects smaller. One of them is once you have a pipeline installed uh, on the, in, in an area, then the marginal cost of extending it just a little bit to pick up smaller dairies that maybe weren't your initial targets, that marginal cost is pretty small. And so once you've made the big investment, you can bring more dairies on board. And we're seeing that all over our Pixley project and our Merced project and some other ones. Uh, the other one is we're getting better at trucking gas. So if you've got a smaller dairy that maybe isn't near a big group, uh, we've got two or three dairies now that are already trucking gas from a more remote location and then hauling the gas into an offload site where we can inject it. So 
we keep learning on that. That has really been a learning experience. Uh, the trucking and compressing explosive gas everywhere is not easy, uh, but uh, it's it's exciting, and, and we'd like to see that as us and other companies build up the infrastructure so that there's more places to go, it just gives producers more options for, hey, where do I want to bring my gas, and where's the best market, and where are the best logistics? So uh, things are headed in the right direction, and uh, and we expect to see more of them in the next couple of years. Well, thanks again. We really appreciate you taking the time to be on today. Thank you very much, Darby. We appreciate everything uh, Western Dairies is doing. It's, uh, it's, it's great to have an organization that speaks for the, as a member's organization, and, uh, and uh, it's, it's fun to do business here in California with, with the support we get from, uh, from the industry organizations like yours. Well, thanks again. Thanks again to everyone from Moss for taking the time to meet with us and discuss what's going on. Now we're gonna jump in and listen to the webinar from this week with Ashley Rosales from the Dairy Council of California. Yosemite Farm Credit is the farmer's choice for agriculture financing. As a farmer owned cooperative, we are dedicated to serving our neighbors in the agriculture community with financial products and services tailored to your operation and backed with the relationship you can trust. Whether you're purchasing real estate, making improvements to the dairy, or wanting to purchase or lease equipment, we're here to help our members prosper. Visit our website at yosemitefarmcredit.com to find a branch location nearest you. Go ahead and get started. Thank you everyone for joining us today. I am so glad to welcome Ashley Rosales. She's an RDN and the Program Director for Nutrition with the Dairy Council of California. And she is joining us today to share about the recently released 2020 to 2025 Dietary Guidelines for Americans and what that means for dairy producers and just anybody that eats and drinks because it's, it's so important to include dairy in a healthy diet. So welcome, so thank you so much for joining us today, Ashley. Thank you for having me. Um, I appreciate everyone taking the time to connect. I know the virtual platform isn't always, you know, optimal. We're doing it so much more these days, but it also does, you know, increase our ability to connect with each other and share this important information. So I do appreciate all of your time today as well. Um, thank you again, Melissa, for the introduction. I am going to share my screen. I do have some slides um, to kind of hopefully just, uh, as I talk through some of these updates, provide, you know, an additional lens um, for learning some of the content. So hopefully those are helpful to you. But I also just want to reiterate what you shared, Melissa. If anyone has questions about any of the content that I'm providing, just um, feel free to jump in and ask the question either in the chat or just unmute and um, raise the hand and, and ask. I'm happy to make this a, you know, um, interactive dialogue as we go through. And we'll definitely have time in the conclusion of the, the update for more discussion and questions. So with that, I will share my screen. And we just confirm, Melissa, that everything is showing up fine, right? On it looks, looks all really good. Yes, thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much. So as Melissa said, my name is Ashley Rosales. I am a registered dietitian nutritionist. I've been practicing as a, a dietitian for about um, 14 years now. I am lucky enough to be the program director of nutrition science with Dairy Council of California. 
I've spent um, over the past decade of my career with Dairy Council of California and um, very excited for the work that we do um, specifically with our cause to elevate the health of children and families in California through the pursuit of healthy eating habits. Uh, nutrition education is such a vital component of that, um, specifically in helping children um, in school, you know, learn about healthy eating, helping parents to equip those children in healthy environments, and then just enabling communities to foster healthy eating habits and increased access to nutrient-dense foods like milk and dairy foods. We are so thankful for the support of the dairy community in um, our efforts on behalf of Dairy Council of California and um, equipping us to, on your behalf, work together to achieve that cause. And thank you for your contribution to not only um, helping the health of children and families, but to community health as well. So over the next 20 minutes or so, I have some slides prepared to share some of the high level overviews that have recently um, been shared out of the release of the 2020 to 2025 dietary guidelines for Americans. I'll also be kind of customizing that as it relates to implications for milk and dairy foods in healthy eating patterns and opportunities looking forward as well. So just to provide a kind of high level contents to the importance and significance of the dietary guidelines for Americans, they really are a reflection um, that sets in motion the nutritional landscape that we have here in the United States. So um, every five years, there is an assigned scientific um, committee that represents you know, esteemed experts in the field of nutrition that review current nutrition science. Um, and their charge is to um, elevate ele uh, evidence-based nutrition science and provide recommendations that go to USDA and Health and Human Services. Um, at that point in the process, USDA and HHS take all of the advice, the scientific advisory committee's recommendations, and they also give an opportunity for various public comment throughout the process. Um, and then they release their final edition of the dietary guidelines for Americans. That really sets in motion multiple purposes. Um, the first being the main goal of improving the healthy eating patterns of Americans of all ages, um, reducing risks of chronic diseases that we see so prevalently and um, setting in motion the ability for Americans to achieve optimal health. So it can be a tool and guidance for um, health professionals and educators in their efforts to work with consumers on healthy eating behaviors. But what's also really important to remember is that the dietary guidelines for Americans are additionally really critical in setting in motion other nutrition policies and specifically serving as the foundation for nutrition assistance programs. And this is really important because nutrition policy and specifically federal nutrition assistance programs are really that bridge between what the guidelines you know, encourage us to do to achieve optimal health, but um, also make possible the ability to access nutrient-dense foods that most Americans need more, more of in their daily lives. And these programs of significance, for example, are the National School and Breakfast Program, um, SNAP, or Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, WIC, um, serving women, infants, and children, 
and the child and adult care food program. So again, the dietary guidelines for Americans serves many purposes, both at empowering the individual level, improving you know, our food systems, and even at that higher level, guiding and setting in motion nutrition policies. This, you know, looking at the way Americans are eating is really a good context to begin our discussion of how um, the dietary guidelines share their um, current recommendations. Most Americans um, are having and consuming um, poor diets with low diet quality. And this is really important because more than half of all um, adults are experiencing one or more chronic diseases. We continue to have rising rates of um, overweight and obesity. And many of these are linked to poor um, diet quality and poor diets overall. And that's a really important part of consideration when looking at the dietary guidelines that's aiming to improve the health and the dietary patterns of people throughout their life. This chart here um, really shows the gap between what the dietary guidelines recommendations are and what most Americans throughout their life are actually consuming. So the numbers you see here are actually a measure of overall alignment to dietary guidelines recommendations and can be seen as a measure of healthy eating as a score. Um, this score is ranked on a scale of 100. And you can see here that looking across the age groups um, from toddlerhood all the way through childhood, um, adulthood, and even on to older adulthood, there's still a lot of room to improve the overall healthy eating of, um, of people in their life. So in looking at the release of the recent dietary guidelines for Americans, they really wanted to focus um, on this shift to not thinking them, of them as a prescription, but rather a customizable framework that we can all utilize um, to improve our healthy eating um, behaviors, habits, and patterns. And so they were aiming to really have people see this as a template for healthier eating. They're emphasizing the idea of making every bite count, and they're doing that through what they look at as four key fundamental guidelines. You can kind of consider these as the lenses in which you um, see all the other recommendations through. And so the first one here is to follow a healthy dietary pattern at every life stage. And I'll be talking more important about the significance of shifting to this idea of healthy eating across the lifespan. The next is to um, look at eating patterns through a customizable um, and personalizable lens. So enjoying more nutrient dense foods and beverages that reflect an individual's personal preferences that celebrate their cultural traditions and diversity and that also factor in budgetary considerations. The third um, key guideline is to focus on meeting the food group needs. Again, the idea of food groups as part of eating patterns was carried forward from the previous edition of the dietary guidelines. But this time there's a focus on nutrient dense foods and beverages within these food groups within appropriate calorie limits. And the last is to look at limiting the intake of foods and beverages that are higher in added sugars 
saturated fat and sodium, but that those foods that provide limited other um, nutrient density and overall limiting of alcoholic beverages as well. So some of the key highlights that are worth noting in the, in the new release of the dietary guidelines are again, this idea of looking at eating patterns across life stages. So they really emphasize that no matter what stage we are in life, um, factoring in culture, um, socioeconomics, um, race, ethnicity, gender, everybody has um, can improve health with the adoption and shift towards healthier eating behaviors. So that's really important. The other is that it, it acknowledges that there are unique times in life where there are specific um, nutrition considerations that need to be met for optimal health. And this starts in um, infancy uh, on to infancy and early toddlerhood, um, goes to childhood and adolescence, considers adulthood, pregnancy and lactation, and then on to older adulthood. For the first time, the Dietary Guidelines for Americans did create specific recommendations of pregnancy um, for pregnancy and lactating mothers, and also for infants birth to 23 months. And I'll talk a little bit about how this presents opportunity for milk and dairy foods. The guidelines also maintain the um, current recommendations to limit sugar or added sugar, I should be specific, added sugar and saturated fat at 10% of total um, cal calories. This stays consistent from what we saw in 2015. And then also maintains um, current recommendations for limiting alcohol where they were before. And then lastly, as I mentioned, it really has an emphasis on supporting dietary patterns as a framework for um, factoring in personalization, um, preference, values, cultural traditions and food ways, and budget as well. So I just want to touch on five key highlights as opportunities for milk and dairy foods that were brought forth in the um, 2020 Dietary Guidelines for Americans. The first is, is that dairy does retain and remain as its own food group. So it carried forward the food groups as previously um, had in the 2015 Dietary Guidelines, which are fruits, vegetables, grains, protein, and um, dairy foods. It, Further though, emphasizes this idea to move towards healthy dietary patterns that focus on nutrient dense foods. And within that, milk and dairy foods were really highlighted for their um, not just nutritional contribution, but to being linked to um, healthy dietary patterns that support a wide range of positive health outcomes throughout the lifespan, which is really important. There was emphasis on um, dairy milk as uh, and you know cheese, yogurt, and other nutrient dense dairy foods for their unique nutritional package, and specifically on their ability to deliver key nutrients that we need throughout life that most Americans aren't getting enough of. And then, as I mentioned earlier, in the first ever recommendations for infants um, through the age of two years old. Um, milk and dairy were highlighted as nutrient dense food offerings in this early phase of life. 
and specifically yogurt and cheese were mentioned as food choices in early food introduction when um, when older infants are consuming complementary foods for the first time. Lastly, I'll just mention that within the dairy food group, um, that includes uh, milk, cheese, yogurt, um, kefir, and uh, dairy-based desserts, focuses on low-fat and fat-free varieties for the most part, and does include uh, calcium-fortified soy uh, beverage. I will acknowledge here, though, that it did specify that other plant-based beverages were not included for their lack of nutritional adequacy in um, not being able to provide the same nutrient package as uh, milk and dairy foods. So as I mentioned before, there really is this shift in this focus on overall eating patterns. So we're, we're seeing a less of a focus on looking at isolated nutrients and a shift towards what we call nutrient dense foods and beverages. And this is really important because milk and dairy foods are a key role of these healthy dietary patterns um, that include nutrient dense foods mentioned in the guidelines as a variety of vegetables, fruits, um, especially whole fruits, grains with an emphasis on whole grains, as I mentioned, dairy foods, and here this includes low-fat, um, fat-free milk, yogurt, cheese, um, other varieties of milk and dairy foods like lactose-free versions and fortified soy beverage. It also includes protein foods like lean meats, poultry, eggs, seafood, lentils, nuts and seeds, and again, um, healthy oils. So I mentioned this key shift towards acknowledging specific phases in life where we have key nutrition needs for optimal health, growth, development, and longevity. And I think this is really important to consider because for the first time, instead of just talking about healthy eating generally, we're able to hone in and highlight key times where we can ensure that nutrition needs are met. And these um, key life stages that were included in the guidelines were infants and toddlerhood. So this is um, from birth to two years old, childhood and adolescence, adulthood, pregnancy and lactation, and then older adulthood as well. You may have heard from um, previous editions of the dietary guidelines that there are certain nutrients of concern that basically means um, these are key nutrients that most Americans are not consuming enough of that can, that can pose a public health risk. Those nutrients that were identified um, from the previous dietary guidelines still carry forward to the current guidelines. Calcium, potassium, vitamin D, and dietary fiber. And those first three continue to be supplied um, efficiently through the consumption of milk and dairy foods um, as a way to get these nutrients in an accessible, enjoyable, um, affordable way. But what's different from the previous edition of the guidelines is that with this focus on life stages and focus on key times throughout our life where we need to meet certain nutrient needs, it can highlight an additional opportunity where milk and dairy foods become critically important. So as you can see here, 
infancy, um, you know, needs a wide variety of critical nutrients like iron, zinc, protein, vitamin D, choline, potassium. Again, milk and dairy foods are, you know, a contributor of many of these key nutrients. Adolescence, adulthood. I mentioned pregnancy and lactation before. This is really key because iodine and choline um, are supplied through milk and dairy foods. And so there was an emphasis that pregnant lactating women really do have their dairy food recommend, um, recommended servings met. And then lastly, older adulthood where protein and vitamin B12 are, are key contributors to optimal aging. So in summary, I just wanna leave us with some thoughts as we go into our discussion on some key aspects to consider when it comes to highlights of the dietary guidelines for Americans and some of the focus areas. Again, this idea of the first thousand days of life is really quit critical. When a woman is pregnant, um, growing her healthy baby through that second birthday, this is a critical window where that child is developing lifelong, um, lifelong imprints on their health and setting them up for um, well-being throughout life. So in this phase, nutrition is critical for optimal growth, for bone health and muscle development, to um, develop the growth of the brain and cognitive development. And even we're learning more about how social emotional skills um, are even begin in this early window. So milk and dairy foods are a nutrient dense food that's critical in eating patterns starting right off um, with um, you know, the beginning of a child's life. Additionally, although the dietary guidelines provide us this, you know, wonderful evidence-based framework for healthy eating patterns, it also acknowledges that just the knowledge of what to eat and the education of what to do to improve our, our eating um, is only one important key component. We also have to look at um, solutions to implement the guidelines and help ensure that um, people of all ages, um, but specifically children and their families are able to adopt the recommendations of the dietary guidelines for Americans. So to do this, we really have to have innovative solutions for um, access. This is where the dietary guidelines acknowledge the important role that these federal nutrition assistance programs have like school meals as a key example, or the WIC program. It also talks about how we can collaboratively build more equitable solutions to ensure that nutrition education and nutrient dense foods are made accessible to those who need them the most. And lastly, that they're factoring in um, culture and diversity and other um, socioeconomic considerations. And although they don't give directions exactly how to do this, they do urge that there will need to be collaborative um, efforts to accomplish this, as well as ensuring that all of this is done in a way that supports sustainable, healthy eating patterns as well. So we know that that's kind of the future direction of where we're, um, where we're, we're leading to over the next five years, um, setting us up for the next edition of the dietary guidelines. And I'd re be remiss not to kind of conclude this um, discussion with the importance that the dietary guidelines for Americans have 
in our current environment and the significance that we've seen as a result of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Um, more than ever before, there is a increased focus and an interest in understanding um, the importance of healthy eating patterns and how poor diets are linked not just to chronic disease risk, but to communicable, communicable disease risk as well. So our immune systems are tied to the way we eat. And that's really important when you're looking at um, reducing risk of disease. It also takes into consideration the um, immense burden that we're seeing of children and families um, on uh, that are experiencing food insecurity. We knew this before the pandemic, but it's definitely been exacerbated um, as a result of um, what's happening in our environment. And so ensuring that nutrient dense foods are made affordable, that they're accessible and that they're um, culturally relevant in these healthy eating patterns are important um, part of ensuring people have what they need uh, to grow healthfully and live healthfully. So USDA does have a um, platform for supporting resources, um, specifically for health educators and professionals and others looking to help um, people take action in implementing dietary guidelines for Americans. Uh, this idea of make every bite count is at the core of some of these uh, health promotion and education solutions. And they continue to utilize MyPlate, which might be a familiar graphic for you. Um, uh, this emphasis on starting simple with MyPlate, they have resources through their um, MyPlate hub that encourages individuals at different parts of their life to make steps towards healthier eating, including milk and dairy foods. Uh, dairy Council of California as a nutrition education organization also aligns with dietary guidelines, um, utilizes MyPlate and integrate several of these resources into our vast nutrition education efforts happening here in California and beyond. And then I'll leave us with the idea of the fact that the dietary guidelines are an ongoing process. Um, like I mentioned, they occur every five years, we get the release of this important, significant report and guidance. But the work that it takes to um, continue to move the evidence um, towards the recommendations is always occurring. And so we're already starting now building the evidence base for what we're going to see in 2025 with the next edition of the Dietary Guidelines for Americans. So just bringing into light um, some of the key future areas of research that I want to highlight and leave with you as foods for thought as we move forward, um, there are you know, there was an effort through public comment and through other discussions on having the dietary guidelines really reflect some of the research that we are seeing um, with saturated fat and health outcomes, specifically looking at whole dairy foods or a wide range of full fat dairy foods as being health promoting. So although those recommendations were not adopted in the current edition of the guidelines, the advisory committee or that scientific group did acknowledge that this evidence is building and they encourage the continuance of this research on the food matrix, specifically foods like whole fat dairy to show that high quality dairy foods in these whole forms are part of health, um, healthy eating patterns. So there's an opportunity there. 
The other opportunity is that they recognize that healthy eating patterns and specifically nutrient-dense foods do more than just reduce the risk of chronic disease. Uh, they also provide many functional benefits, such as helping to improve immune function. Um, cognitive performance is another key aspect of a functional part that foods play in our lives. And additionally, this emphasis on looking at the, um, our gut health or the microbiome. Within this research, milk and dairy foods, especially fermented dairy foods, have a really important story to tell. So there will be likely more research in this area building to the next dietary guidelines as well. And so I'll just conclude the update. And um, as we branch into our discussion, I just want to reiterate that although the dietary guidelines provide these really important recommendations that all of us can use to help um, inspire and uh, spark healthier eating habits um, and healthy eating patterns across our life, we recognize that it's gonna take collaborative action to make these healthy changes possible, um, to ensure that nutrition education, access to nutrient dense foods and collaboration across sectors is helping make every bite count um, and improving the, the health of children and families. And that's where Dairy Council of California really wants to invite you to join us in our efforts on this behalf. Um, again, with our cause to elevate the health of children and families through the pursuit of healthy eating habits. We can really do a lot here in our state and we really already are of um, in ensuring that nutrition education is provided in schools and in communities that we are continuing to have the role of milk and dairy foods in these vital nutrition assistance programs that were collaborative with various community leaders um, in making healthy changes and that we're working on behalf of our industry and our dairy community to um, continue to make dairy milk and dairy foods um, a core part of healthy eating patterns here in California and, and beyond. So with that, thank you for letting me have the um, time to share all of this with you. I really look forward to your questions and discussions or even comments. Thanks so much, Ashley, for joining us today. It, is there anybody in the group that has a question? Maybe questions are formulating. If you feel more comfortable, you can put them in the chat. Um, one question that we had submitted ahead of time, Ashley, is um, dairy producers are obviously really passionate about what they do and the product that they produce. And they're equally as passionate about getting it into the hands of consumers, but sometimes they kind of don't know how to do that. And um, the listener was from the podcast a few weeks ago was just wondering like, if you guys have recommendations for dairy producers about ways that they can be more involved in their communities and getting dairy products to the people who need them most. Thank you, I think that's a great um, question. And I think it really reminds me of the sentiment that we closed with that, you know, creating the shifts that we need to say, see towards healthier eating starting here in California is a collaborative effort. And our dairy community is a part of that along with health educators, um, school educators, community leaders, policymakers. And so Dairy Council of California um, definitely serves a unique role in the nutrition education space and helping to you know, connect many of those aspects. So working 
um, again, understanding shifts in um, key parts of those federal meal programs like school breakfast and lunch. Um, we have a lot of information on the work happening there. Um, again, helping equip the dairy community with the efforts being done to promote these products through nutrition education happening in schools. Um, dairy ag literacy that's happening through our mobile dairy classroom assemblies. All of this, I think, you know, um, can serve the dairy community to be involved in these efforts and see where these might play a role in their own um, local communities. So again, I encourage healthyeating.org is where um, you can go to learn more, to join our Let's Eat Healthy movement. Again, that was healthyeating.org backslash join. Uh, more connection can be found there. And then lastly, you know, we do have other support services to provide the dairy community with um, specific nutrition science information, really helping translate some of this ongoing uh, nutrition research and guidance that can, you know, kind of be confusing or overwhelming and make it relatable and actionable for the dairy community. One of the reports that we have is um, on nutrition trends. And we um, provide this to the dairy community annually. It's based on a proprietary trends process that we look at all of these types of things in the environment. Um, articles, recommendations, journals, key things. And we distill that down into relevant ways that the dairy community can um, amplify the role of their products in the current environment. So that can also be found through our website as well. Awesome, thank you so much. Are there other questions today for Ashley? Well, again, thank you so much, Ashley, for joining us. We are going to, as I mentioned, this has been recorded. We're going to um, put it up on our website for those that like to listen again, and we'll also run it on our podcast this week. This is super valuable information. Um, it looks like we have a question in the chat. Um, what research is being done to promote whole fat milks and milk products? So there is ongoing um, efforts in this area. I think just seeing the focus on um, in this current dietary guidelines on children, um, specifically what is needed for their health, zero to two years old. And in those early years is a research focus that's happening um, at a national level. And it's something that I know we're increasingly interested in um, at Dairy Council of California with our focus specifically on children, um, meeting the needs for their growth and development across their life, really understanding uh, the role that whole dairy foods have in those critical early stages in life are really important. And so I do think there's gonna be increased efforts in research in that area. Um, and then to their question more broadly, I, we're also seeing a shift towards um, more research focused specifically on the dairy food matrix so that we're looking at whole dairy foods, not just through the lens of saturated fat as an isolated component, but, but how that whole food comes together to potentially impart health. Um, so we're learning so much about how um, it really is more than just these, a food is more than their isolated components and dairy foods uniquely have one of the most complex and important nutrient matrices, uh, food matrices to learn from. 
And so it's really exciting to see the areas of research happening um, there uh, that again, go back to more inclusion of a variety of uh, fat levels for those nutrient dense dairy foods. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Ashley. You're welcome back anytime. We really enjoyed your presentation today. And for those that are interested, this will be up on the website in the next couple of days. So please feel free to pass it along to your friends and neighbors. I think it's super important information. Um, something I'm certainly passionate about. I know a lot of our producers are, especially knowing right now that it's really tough for folks who are in tight financial spots to get their hands on healthy foods and especially dairy products, which are a little more perishable and tougher for the food banks to source. So we really appreciate all the information you brought us and the context, it's really important. Thank you for having me, I appreciate your time. Well, thanks everybody for this week's episode. As we close up here, we do wanna talk about some animal rights activists and some activity that's been happening. Animal rights activists have dubbed this month, No February and have voiced their intent to focus on dairy farms in California throughout the month. That, combined with an uptick in rural crime, prompted us to reach out to our law enforcement partners to gather some tips for producers to protect your farms from trespass, theft, and general harm. Remember to always be diligent and report a suspicious activity. Take pictures or video of any suspicious persons or vehicles. If you need to call local dispatch, please be prepared to provide the following information to the best of your ability. For joining us for today's episode, and of course, a thank you to all of our listeners and members as always. Remember to reach out to us with questions, comments, and content requests. And you could do that at wud.pod at gmail.com, M-L-E-M-A at wudairies.com, or D-A-R-B-Y at wudairies.com. And those, of course, will always be linked in our show notes as well. Note if it's a suspicious person or a suspicious vehicle, why it's suspicious, the exact location where you are and where the vehicle was seen, a description, what makes the vehicle or the person stand out, and if it is a person, provide head-to-toe details, the direction of travel, the license plate or a partial license plate, any weapons seen, if they appeared under the influence, and how many people there were. Remember to keep your gates closed during this time, especially at night, and put up signs that make it clear that people are trespassing when they cross any property marker. Update your employees on all protocols for visitors, expected and unexpected. Please keep in mind that these tips from law enforcement help them to better serve their communities. They cannot provide service if they are unaware of suspicious activity. Always call your local agency should you feel someone is out of place on or near your dairy. Additionally, always approach unexpected visitors calmly and cordially, and always do your best to film your interactions and take photos. For resources in Spanish and no trespassing signs, you can contact us at the WUD office, 209-527-6453, or your field representative, and we're happy to provide you with those materials. Great information, Darby. Yeah, it's like kind of a really sensitive time out there. So just really caution everyone to be on extra alert the next few weeks. A huge thank you to Tiffany LaMondola, Daryl Moss, our webinar presenter, Ashley Rosales of the Dairy Council of California. Remember, we would love it if you would rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite platform and have a great weekend and a happy Valentine's Day, everyone.
While Western United Dairies respects the varied views of our podcast guests, please know that views expressed on Seen and Heard may not necessarily reflect the positions of the Western United Dairies Board of Directors. Thank you to Western United Dairies generous 2020 business sponsors, Gar Bennett, California Dairy Magazine, Farm Credit Alliance, FNR Ag Services, Moss Energy Works, Bennett Environmental, PG&E, and Yosemite Farm Credit. We appreciate our sponsors and thank them for their continued support. If you'd like more information on how to sponsor Western United Dairies or this podcast, please send us an email at info at wudairies.com. That's info at wudairies.com. Thank you.